Okay, perhaps I'll begin. Um, I think you were all thinking I had a 15-minute break, including me, but we didn't <laughs> after that. This evening, what I want to speak about um, is, in a sense, beginning at the beginning, which is starting with the body. So I want to speak about the body this evening and its importance. So it's, it's in a way, it's a series of reflections on the body within this practice, looking at it slightly from both an Eastern and Western perspective. So that's, that's where we're going to go, that's where we're heading. Um, but even taking things right back to the fundamentals, one of the things I want to claim is that the body is the primary site for our recollection of being in this world. It's the primary site for that whole movement of recollecting where we are. And what we call mindfulness of body, and I want to just go into that word a little bit, and I'm sure you'll hear a lot about that this week, this whole notion of, of mindfulness in general. Um, obviously, it's the theme of the week. It's what many of you teach. It's what some of you are in training doing, um, yet it's a much, much misunderstood concept. And I know Akinchino is going to be talking much later in the week about this in detail with you. So I only want to cover some broad brushstrokes this evening to get us into talking about the body or me exploring the body a little bit with you. So recollection. Um, I deliberately use this word recollection because actually when we start to look at the Pali term and I'm not going to use too many Pali terms tonight this ancient Indian language um, which you find the early text preserved in um, in this early language we have this term sati which I'm sure many of you have come across which is the word that gets translated as mindfulness this word mindfulness um, isn't coined until 1881 uh, by somebody who founded the Pali Text Society, which was the body that started the initial translation work on a lot of these early texts. And so that's really when this term mindfulness in this context of Buddhism really entered into Western languages. And it was an attempt to capture what was meant by the term sati. Unfortunately, um, it leaves out much of what it's meant to capture. Um, the word itself derives from some roots which mean to remember or to recollect something. Uh, this is the fundamental meaning of this term. And in its ancient Indian context, it was used to describe something like historical memory, to remember something from the past. Um, there's a whole class of Indian literature, I won't go into it with you, but whole class of Indian literature, which is basically a literature of remembering. Some of you might have come across them as a very big, big poem, 100,000 stanzas, so it's a pretty large <laughs> poem, uh, called the Mahabharata. Uh, the Mahabharata says about itself, what's in here is not worth knowing. What, you know, is not, what's in here that isn't in here is not worth knowing, because it's so large, it's meant to be encompass everything. Now, this particular poem is considered to be something which has been remembered, almost like proto-history, and so it tells stories. Many of you will probably know that an extremely important ancient Indian text is found in this, something called the Bhagavad Gita, which uh, many people, if you've any, done any yoga, uh, will have come across. 
Now, the Buddha uses this term, um, which, as I say, has an Indian origin to it, an ancient Indian origin to it, and he uses it in a way which tries to capture something about our experience. Rather than simply meaning that the term sati is about historical recollection, he brings that recollection into, in a sense, the present moment. And if you want a stab, and I do really do mean a stab, because in my sadder moments I sit there pondering these translations of terms, uh, then probably the best and most accurate translation of this is something like present moment recollection or present moment remembrance. So rather than mindfulness, it doesn't trip off the tongue quite so easily, does it? Uh, the term present moment recollection, but in a way it's much, much more accurate because what he's trying to get us to, to come to grips with is the idea that we're bringing ourselves and reminding ourselves where we are, what we're doing in this present moment, right? So we're not thinking about the past, we're not dredging up the past and bringing that into the present moment, what we're doing is simply recollecting the mind, remembering. Words that work beautifully in English, I don't actually, I don't often do this uh, when we translate terms, but, you know, to recollect, to remember, I mean, remember you know, is actually to bring something out of fragmentation into some degree of wholeness, to bring it into this moment and to recollect where we are and what we're engaged in. Because much of what we're engaged in is not recollection, it's actually forgetfulness. Yeah. This is what um, most of our lives are spent doing, uh, actually forgetting who we are, what we are and what we're doing. Uh, and this is, I think, brought home to us by a, a quote that I came across well, a couple of years ago. A quote, actually not from a Buddhist source, but from a novelist who some of you may have come across called Milan Kundera, who wrote a work called The Unbearable Likeness of Being, which was filmed. Um, but he said this, he said, Speed, the demon of speed, is often associated with forgetting, with avoidance, and slowness with memory and confronting. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others and the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us and our ability to observe, to hear, to step back and to wonder. Society wants to blow out the tiny, trembling flame of memory. It's quite a powerful quote. I think it gives you a sense of why, in some senses, mindfulness, I'm not going to, I don't think my phrase is ever going to catch on. Um, so we're kind of stuck with the word mindfulness. But this, I think, it gives us a, a, a sort of feeling for why mindfulness is such an important dimension of you know, contemporary life, of what we're bringing into contemporary life in this secular way as we do in these more therapeutic 
usages that we find in MBSR and MBCT and other, other mindfulness-based interventions which use mindfulness often as a component, even if not the central part of what they're engaging in. Now, when we look at these approaches, when we look at the approaches of mindfulness-based interventions, when we look at the approaches of the early Buddhist texts, a text in some ways which forms the template for the development of these approaches and the template of pretty well what we're doing in this retreat this week, this very ancient text which I think Christine has already referred to, which is known as the Satipatthana Sutta, the ways of establishing mindfulness. Yeah. The four ways of establishing mindfulness. If you haven't read it, I really would encourage you to use it, because to read it and to look at it and to contemplate it. Because it is, as I say, the background to much of what we're doing, much of what has been taken up and, in a sense, reconstituted in terms of these contemporary applications. And that approach starts with the body as does, as you will well know, all of you who are engaged in doing this, where do we start with mindfulness-based applications, uh, MBCT, MBSR, we start with the body. Yeah. It is the locus, the primary locus of experience, and this is why it's so important. And this was recognized by the Buddha right from the outset. His project, which is a project I think in many ways, again, which has resonances with what we're doing, direct resonances with what we're doing in mindfulness-based applications, is, is attempting to deal with a problem that all of us literally suffer from. And it goes under, again, under a Pali term, which is called dukkha. Uh, this Pali term, dukkha, covers everything from minor dissatisfaction to tragedy in our lives, anything that doesn't go our way. Um, but it's not just simply the facts of what happens to us, it's the way that we deal with them. Um, it's almost like the secondary suffering that we bring upon ourselves, the self-inflicted wound, the thing that we do to ourselves when things happen, when events transpire when reality erupts into our lives, as it so often does, even when we think everything's going swimmingly, doesn't it? It has a tendency of thinking, you know, we have a tendency to think, well, when's it going to go wrong? Because it generally does at some point, and somehow reality erupts into it. And it could be sickness, it could be death, it could be just, you know, the kind of ordinary misfortunes of our life. And these are the things that we don't stop and we can't stop yet we exacerbate them. And that, in a sense, is exactly what we're dealing with, both, I think, in MBIs and in the Buddhist world. We're dealing with that which we bring to the experience of what has happened to us, what is happening to us, what we're going through at this moment in time. The Buddha uses this term dukkha as a kind of general term. It's a spectrum word in these original languages, which I say covers everything from something fairly minor, which might be our dissatisfaction. As you notice, human beings are pretty well dissatisfied with most things. Even when we're getting our way, we're usually dissatisfied about it in some way or another. 
Um, you know, you've just got the thing you really wanted, but it's not quite the right colour. Uh, you know, you go on your holiday to your most desired place, but the food isn't quite right. Um, human beings are constantly grumbling. Um, you know, we're constantly moaning about things. And there is that dimension of life, but there is also the tragic dimension of life. You know, the existential elements of our lives which we simply can't avoid as we get older, as we get sick, and as eventually we head towards the inevitable, which is our non-existence, which is our mortality, our death. And so we have this vast spectrum of things, of course, which we react to in our lives. We react to them. We don't respond to them, we react to them. And as you will well know, because I'm really not covering any ground if you're involved in, in any of these mindfulness-based applications that you won't have covered already, know something about already. I'm just kind of reminding you, again, recollecting with you out loud what's important, why we're engaged in doing what we're doing, both on a personal basis and perhaps professionally when we're engaging in bringing those, you know, those particular forms both with MBSR and MBCT, uh, into our workplace, into what we're doing, how we engage with people, with, with client groups and patients and all sorts of things. So it's a kind of reminder of what we're doing. It's about what we bring to experience. It's what the way, in a sense, we turn even just ordinary human concerns into something fairly miserable and something which is unpleasant uh, for ourselves. And we do that because of reactivity. And so this is what we're engaging with, with this reactive level of life. The body is our locus of experience. The body is in life. The Buddha and these modern secular interpretations start from this point, from the point of the body. The Buddha was very clear about this when he talked about waking up. Um, I'm very strong on this, that uh, rather than the Buddha aiming at enlightenment, um, which is something really that only occurred in the 18th century and has nothing to do with what the Buddha was engaged in, um, the Buddha was concerned about us waking up Waking up, as he says, to the way things really are. Not the way we'd like to fantasize them, not the way we'd like them to be, but the way that they actually are. You know, he talks about them as being. Life is dukkha. Um, it doesn't mean life is suffering. It's life is a constant series of vicissitudes which afflict us. Life is not easy. I think most of us can attest to that, you know, as we've moved, you know, no matter how old you are, as we've moved, we've all confronted difficulties in our lives. We've all had our major tragedies, our minor tragedies, and we've all had our sicknesses and ill health and all the sorts of things that beset us just by being alive. Um, and the Buddha recognizes that. That was one of the things about the way things are, that we get afflicted as we move through our lives, yeah. Even if we're going through the kind of honeymoon periods, sometimes, as I say, something will come along which will erupt into life and disrupt our lives, disrupt the way we are, disrupt 
um, you know, those certainties and those continuities that we desire in life. And so this was considered to be one of the things that, you know, if we really look closely uh, and really, in some sense, respond to life, then this is the way things are. They're difficult, actually. Just don't need to put it any, any, in any other way. Just things can be difficult for us. But have you noticed how we can make even difficulty into being even more difficult? <laughs> you know, never leave a good difficulty as it is. Tinker with it. <laughs> React to it. <laughs> put it under a magnifying glass. You know, and you can turn even the most minor thing into a major tragedy. Yeah. And this is what we're doing. Um, so the first thing, in a way, we can't deal with. You know, the, vicissitude, the, the vicissitude of life, what has afflicted us, what has come upon us. Sometimes we just have, we're just powerless to do anything about it. Sometimes we can do something about it, and it's not a recommendation for us to be simply passive and to sit there and do nothing. If you can do something about it, do something about it. That's the Buddha's attitude in this. But if you can't do something about it, then in a way we have to learn not to magnify it, not to make it into something far worse than it is. And this is part of what we're waking up to. Waking up to actually how we go on and how we can cease to, as I say, make miseries out of sometimes minor events in our lives and even make the difficult, the tragic, even more tragic and even more difficult than it actually is. We're waking up to impermanence. Yeah, actually, I really could just stop there. That's it. You know, we wake up to impermanence, and certainly the impermanence that doesn't work for us. You know, I always distinguish between impermanence that works for us and the impermanence that doesn't work for us. The impermanence that works for us is the stuff when you walk, go into your job in the morning and the boss has given you a raise. You know, he's promoted you and done things like that. You know, and, and things are going you know, for you rather than against you. But then, of course, there's the changes that we resist because we don't like them. Uh, the opposite scenario, you walk in, you've either been fired or they've, you, know, you have to take a wage cut, or something like that. As you can see, two very different scenarios, both about change, one which goes for us, and one which actually um, goes against what we want in life. So we react often to those changes, um, and some of them, as we know, are sort of gigantic. They're on, on the sort of environmental, on the social fields, and some of these we can't do anything about and we react to them, and often we're powerless to deal with these things. So there are huge changes that go on, some working for us, some working against, against us. Obviously, we don't react to those other than wanting to cling to that which is good and reject that which is bad. Yeah. And so impermanence is another part of this uh, whole waking up process. And then we're waking up, and I'm not going to deal with this at all, that we're waking up to the notion of a self, not as a thing, but as a process. And that you are a verb and you're not a noun. Yeah. You're something which is in process, you're never at an end. Actually, the only time you're at an end is when you're dead. <laughs> um, 
and the meaning of your life usually gets summed up in the obituaries that people give you. Yeah, that was the meaning of your life. Um, so this idea of being in process was, again, waking up to the idea that life was something which was perpetually unfolding and we didn't give ourselves self-determinating prophecies about the way that it was going to unfold. Um, we can actually influence that. And that's actually this whole process of waking up. We can wake up because we are in process. And if we weren't in process, we couldn't wake up. We couldn't wake up and we couldn't, our lives couldn't be different. They would be very deterministic. We would end up you know, having a, almost, as I say, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, because of acting in particular ways. So this is what we were waking up to. The term sati is, you know, this notion of mindfulness is part of the strategy of waking up. I say part of because in Buddhist terms, it's not the whole story. It's part of what we engage in. It's extremely important. It's a huge dimension of what we're engaged in, but it's not the total story. The other part of it is the ways that we live and are governed by things like our ethical responses to life. And so when we start talking about the Buddha's project of awakening, the project he says everybody is capable of, of waking up, then we're not just talking about sit down on a cushion and everything will be okay. You know, we're talking about a total response to life of which this development of mindfulness with the central locus of the body as being that primary site of recollection as being enormously important but not the totality of the story. So I think you have to hear that this notion of sati within, within the Buddhist path, certainly, is considered not to be an end it's considered to be a means, and it's part of the strategies that the Buddha gives us for this waking up process. That's my preamble. <laughs> now I get to what I really want to talk about. <laughs> As I've said, the starting point in both of these, I dare say, even with this you know, fairly modern manifestation, part of these two traditions of the ancient tradition and the modern tradition um, starts with the body, the recognition of the body as being this primary site of all of our experience. Our primary experience of being in this world. Now again, you will have come across, um, all of you who have been involved in training or trained, you have come across the distinction that you know, Mark Williams and Zindel Siegel and John Teasdale make between being and doing. Yeah. You will all probably have come across that. Um, this is the primary site of our being, the body in the world, the felt sense of our being in the world. Something we're extremely forgetful towards um, because, as we well know, and I don't think the East is actually very separate from this, so the Buddhist tradition tries to be very different, but in general, human beings have, have tended to divide themselves up. Um, a classic example of this, of course, is Descartes in the 17th century in the West, who makes this distinction between mind, and here's the conjunction, and body. And suddenly, out of that seeming equality of mind and body, we already have a, prior, a prioritization a hierarchy 
is it's usually mind over body. Yeah. The, the mind becomes the, well, it becomes the central locus, doesn't it, for the sense of personality, for who we are. What we think is the establishment of our being. You remember Descartes' famous dictum, cogito ergo sum? Yeah. I think I am. Yeah. There was no therefore in the original. Um, it's I think I am. So being is established by thinking. The mind becomes the dominant factor in our life. Um, we divide ourselves. And this is our legacy as Western people, well, operative. Yeah? And I say it is an Eastern thing, not just a Western thing. And if you look at a lot of Indian thought, for example, you find dualisms of this sort. We live a dualistic nature of which we tend to associate with our minds much more than we do with our body. We have correctives in the West, these kind of body movements, you know, which is trying to re-establish uh, a connectedness with the body. But ultimately, often, there is still this underlying dualism that's running through much of our experience, where all really the important stuff is happening in our minds. This is who we are, what we are. And our being is often established through our thinking. So Descartes made that split. And somehow or other, we've never really quite got it together again. Yeah? Yeah, we've never really quite learned to inhabit our bodies. Yeah? Um, so much so that some of you probably know a quotation by James Joyce which comes out of his Dubliners. You know, a character called Mr. Duffy who's described as living at some distance from his body. Yeah. Um, I dwell in the world of academia. I see a lot of people living <laughs> at some distance from their body. Have you noticed how body posture is reflective of that? <laughs> Head jutting out, forward. You know, everything gets projected in terms of the, of the mental capacity. Um, this is the split that's been made. This is the split that, in, that we are attempting to overcome by coming back to this primary locus of the body. Now, the therapeutic methodologies that we, and the therapeutic viability which we engage in with MBSR, MBCT, but also in, in many ways the underlying therapeutic dimension even of, of the Buddha's teaching relies on this establishment of bringing us back to our felt sense of experience. Yeah, back to our fundamental recollection of being as being not a body and mind, but body-mind. Yeah. Without the conjunction, notice, not body and mind, but body-mind, a body in the world. Yeah. A body which feels, a body which senses, We lose contact with our senses when we establish ourselves as a thinking thing. In the West, and I've kind of highlighted Descartes, but you go right back to Plato. Plato was attempting in many senses to identify again our sense of being, our real sense of being as being minds. Yeah. Minds that will have contact with the abstract, 
Somehow we will move to a heavenly sphere which has no contact with this corporeal, messy stuff that we engage in, which is bodily felt experience and contact with the world. And so we've had reactions often against this. And you see that you know, Fritz Perls once said, you know, lose your mind and come to your senses, yeah, which I think was a lovely little way of trying to establish, you know, coming back to our bodily felt experience away from just the mental thinking stuff. So it's really, really important, this establishment. And this establishment of this fundamental recollection of the body as being that locus is absolutely primary to, I think, the changes that we can see both in the mindfulness-based applications, but certainly in the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha made this very, very clear. He made it clear throughout his teaching career, which was a long, very long teaching career. You know, I look at it quite horrifically. He taught for 45 years, you know, wandering around northern India, not even staying in one place, but wandering around teaching. And he taught so much about the nature of the body. And then in some early texts, for example, and I'm only paraphrasing here if you want to ask me sometime for the reference, I can give you the references to it, but he par I'm paraphrasing, he says, you know, those who don't have mindfulness of body, in a way, don't have any chance of waking up. Yeah. He made it that primary. You don't have any chance of gaining the goal if you don't have mindfulness of body. Those, he says, he who has no mindfulness of body has no access to what he calls the deathless, which is a synonym for the state of waking up uh, that he speaks about. When people often used to come to him and talk about access to something which is far more abstract, far more metaphysical, he would bring them back to the sense of their bodily felt experience of being in this world. Um, to give you one small quote here, which is actually out of something which is uh, known as the Connected Discourses. He says, It is, friend, in this fathom-long carcass, endowed as it is with perception and mind, that I make known the world, the origin of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. And the world here is not the world outside there. It's the world of a certain type of experience. And that experience is the experience of dukkha. Yeah. So making known the origins of that world yeah, and making known the way leading to the cessation of that world is not to be looked for outside, but only, as he says, within this fathom-long carcass. Fathom-long, by the way, was about six foot. <laughs> yeah. It has very specific references to Indian culture at the time, but again, you can see that it's bringing us back to this, this primary sense of recollecting where we are, where we are in life, how we are in life. That's not a disembodied experience. That's an embodied experience. We come back to the sense of simply being body-mind. 
As Wittgenstein once said, he says in the Philosophical Investigations, how can a body have a mind? <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting, very simple, very, very kind of to the point though, isn't it? How can a body have a mind? Yeah. As if it's somehow a separate phenomena from this. Now coming back to, again, the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha makes it very, very clear when he speaks about consciousness, when he speaks about mind, he's always speaking about something which is an embodied experience. He's not talking about abstract minds. He's not talking about abstract consciousness. So much of the kind of contemporary movements and almost the new agey movements that we see around speak about, you know, the primacy of consciousness and changing into a kind of cosmic consciousness. This was not the Buddha's way. It was bringing back to, again to this primacy of experience through our perceptual faculties, which are body-mind. Never getting away from that. Never moving into this abstract. In fact, he speaks about what he calls the all. Again, people used to ask him all sorts of things and come up to him and you know, talk about you know, reality and being with a capital B. Can you tell me what the real is? And they'll be looking for the real in something really abstract, something metaphysical, something philosophical. And then he would come back and say something like this. He says, you know, what is the all? And he's kind of asking a question. He says simply this, the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and aromas, the tongue and taste, the body and tactile objects, the mind and thoughts. This is called the all. Yeah. And he says, if anybody might want to say something else, he says, some might say, I reject this all. I will declare another all. But simply because this is a groundless assertion, such a person, when questioned on those grounds for such an assertion, would not be able to explain and would, moreover, meet with sorrow. Yeah. Why? Because that all lies beyond the senses. Yeah. It lies beyond his or her sensorium. Yeah. So again, you see another very clear indication of the Buddha bringing us back to the primacy of perception within embodiment, within our sense of being, which is the body-felt sense of experience. The body, which is our primary way of being in this world. Remembrance, recollection, or mindfulness is turning towards that experience. Yeah. It's turning towards it, not turning away from it. You're encouraged to be curious about your bodily felt experience, to be curious and to be interested in what is arising, not just in the mind, because again, we can start to... Um, see ourselves from this point upwards, can't we? Actually, there's one philosopher, I was quoted this quite recently, uh, who I really liked, because he said this. He said, I have no objection to the head. I have no objection to the body. I have an objection to the neck. Because <laughs> the neck gives the illusion of separation. <laughs> yeah. 
as we can see, you know, that, that illusion is the illusion of two separate states here. And when we come back to this, you're being encouraged to investigate embodied thoughts, embodied activities of the mind, of sitting here. Notice how the encouragement often in some of the most basic instructions that will be given to you at the start of a meditation, yeah, to note what is happening, just to be investigating what is there for you at this moment. Now that may be thought, but that thought is not a dis disembodied thought. That thought is an embodied thought. It will actually have a signature, as some of you well know, because we have this encouragement often to investigate those bodily signatures of thought. You know, anger does not remain in the mind. We often experience it in the tight neck, the muscles in the shoulders becoming tight, the, the visceral, um, gut-felt uh, dimension to that anger. And sometimes this is easier to investigate, much, much easier to investigate the bodily signature of that than it is to try and delve into the problems that we seem to have in our minds. So we can investigate these things through our, again, bodily felt sense of our thinking processes, which are not incorporeal, but are very corporeal. In fact, much of what we think is written on the body. It's written large on the body. Um, it's there in everything. I mean, Nietzsche once sent, I love this quotation, Nietzsche once said, he said, if you want to know a man's philosophy, I'll show you what he had for dinner. <laughs> you know, in the sense that it's so intrinsic to our being in the world that you know, even, you know, it's almost like Scrooge, some of you might be familiar with Christmas Carol, you know, you know the apparitions might be a piece of cheese. <laughs> You know, something you've eaten. So, well, might your thoughts and dimensions be associated almost with your digestive tract? That's how embodied we are. But we can become extremely disembodied when we begin to associate only with that thinking process, when we take ourselves out from this bodily felt sense into this much more abstract dimension of our lives. And as we know, and this is what we're dealing with, certainly in the MBCT, MBSR world, but particularly in MBCT world, we're often dealing with people who are in mental distress but cannot solve their mental distress because what does it do? It goes around and round in rumination. This is what happens. You know, we cannot often solve the emotional by thinking about it. We cannot solve it by the rational means that we use in much of our lives, which is a very powerful tool. And let's not forget that. It's something which is you know, um, amazingly powerful and achieves a lot for us. But unfortunately, when we lose contact with the body, um, we get locked, caught, entrapped, within a realm of mental rumination, which we find it very difficult to escape from 
out into the world. We lose contact with the world. And notice, even just in the language I'm using, I'm using lots of corporeal metaphors. Contact, touching, felt. You know, these are all metaphors which are associated with the body. Felt sense of experience, contact, touching, to be touched. You know, and as we know, with emotion, to be touched. You know, we palpate the world, and we palpate the world not just with our bodies, but with every sense that we do. We, we touch the world in other ways and are reciprocally touched by the world um, in that body-felt sense of experience that we have. So is, when we start off in the Satipatthana Sutta, there is this recognition that there is this primary site of experience, the recognition of the elemental sense of embodiment, the elemental sense of it. And where do we start with this elemental sense? We've done it today. We start with breathing, the recognition of the breath, the recognition of that breathing coming and going, not messing with it, not trying to control it, not engaging in a breathing exercise, but just recognizing the breath coming and going. Sometimes even having that experience not of breathing, but of being breathed. It's almost as if life is breathing us. I mean, why does the Buddha start with this? I don't think it's difficult to discern, is it? You know, stop breathing, worry. <laughs> this is life. And the body of breath, because it is a body of breath, is our life. There's another fundamental reason for this as well, which I'm sure must have struck you at some point, that the reason why we use the breath and the body as this primary experience, as this primary locus for, again, recollecting, Recalling, recognizing, coming back to something which is we are so, so forgetful of is because this, this is something that's happening in real time. This breath is never a past breath and it's never a future breath. This body with its experiences, this fathom-long carcass that the Buddha speaks about, is not a past fathom-long carcass or a future fathom-long carcass. It's one that's happening at this very moment. Here is our anchor, our anchor that brings us directly back into the present. And therein lies much of our problem, isn't it? That we lose touch, again, corporeal metaphor here. We lose touch with the present moment. We drift off into the future. We fall backwards into the past. And much of experience, our thinking processes, are actually defined by those two temporal dimensions. Being strung out between a future that hasn't arrived, which might hold out seemingly in your wildest fantasies, the most disastrous scenarios you can possibly think of, and falling back into a past which can be a past sometimes of joy, let's not 
You know, let's not negate that. But also can be a past that's full of anger and resentment and grumpiness and resentment, you know, all sorts of elements here when we fall back into that past. And we become neglectful, forgetful of this present moment. Now, this is not to elevate the present moment above those futures because we need to plan, we need to think ahead, um, to engage in the processes we do. You all had to plan to be here, to come here. You know, you had to engage in that process of you know, planning how to get here, making the time to do that. It's a very important dimension. Sometimes it's worthy to think about the past. And we can learn. Often we don't. <laughs> um, I always love a little quote by Lawrence Durrell, the novelist, who once said, you know, in thinking about the past, and he's talking about history, he said, he said, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. <laughs> you know. And so when we think about the past, we can possibly learn, but a lot of the times we don't. But of course, we forget, we forget the middle. We forget that dimension of actually being present, of actually being here for your own life. Yeah. And we can see how easy it is to get strung out between these two temporal dimensions of past and future, dimensions of thought. What anchors us in the present, this body? That's what anchors us in this present moment. And so, in a sense, what we do is we engage in this fundamental primary act of recollecting our embodiment. And the most basic way that we do that is with the breath, you know, in the initial stages. Now, the Buddha takes us through a number of stages, and I'm not going to cover those this evening. He takes us a number of stages, but it's worth also noting, if you do look at the Satipatthana Sutta, that the section on the body is really big in terms of not such a huge sutta anyway. Sutta, by the way, is a discourse for those not familiar. In this particular discourse, you have this large section on the body. Interestingly enough, when you get to mind, which is known as chitta, you have a small section. Yeah. It's not to say it's unimportant, um, and some part of what we'll be doing this week is we'll be looking at that, you know, both practically and a little bit in some of the talks. But we, when we look at this, it's quite small in comparison with this primary section, this first section of the text, which is to do with this sense of embodiment. So this act of recognition is our most basic act of recognition. It's to recall where we are. If we're not in our embodiment, we miss out. We miss out because we are not connected, we're not living in our connection with the world. As you've gathered from what I've spoken about so far, I'd like to make connections and with you know, both East and West between the Buddhist teaching and what goes on often in, in Western thought and literature. Um, somebody I find very interesting in this is Virginia Woolf, who's somebody who you might, some of you might have read. 
in her journals, some of which were published under a little title called Moments of Being. Virginia Woolf talks about these absolutely important moments of being. When we hear that, you know, particularly when being is spelt with a capital B, you tend to think it's going to be something really kind of big and abstract and the meaning of life type stuff. It's not. When Virginia Woolf speaks about moments of being, she talks about some of the things actually we often use as the fundamental introduction or the basic introduction to learning to sit, learning to walk in this particular way that we instruct you. Um, and these can be such simple things. Here is a moment of being from her journals. The touch of cool water on skin on a hot day. That's a moment of being. Here's another moment of being, the feeling of the breeze in your hair. Notice how all of these, and if you went through them, I'm not going to cover them all, but just those two examples. If you went through them all, you would find that all of these true moments of being, and notice that, this coming back to yourself, to the sense of who you are. We live in a forgetfulness of being. Often I hear in the Western world, which is almost embedded in a nihilism a lot of the time, I often hear people say, I've forgotten over the years who I was. I've forgotten what is important in my life. As if you have somehow mislaid it. What we've often lost touch with, again, metaphor, what we've often lost touch with is the body as that primary site for the feeling of who and what we are. And that doesn't have to be as a self, as a distinct thing, but as the process of who we are, as something living and connected in this world, we lose sight of these aspects of being which are so almost infinitesimal sometimes, but actually give the richness of dimension to our existence, to being in this world. Think of how much we would lose as a disembodied being. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a disembodied being? Well, A, there would be no sickness and there would be no ageing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but also there would be none of those sights, those sounds, those smells, those tastes. You know, the contact with the natural world, the contact with each other in physicality of touching, of being touched, um, of that lightness and heaviness of being in the world that we can feel often through our embodied gestural sense of being. And I scribbled down before I came downstairs actually a quote from the poet Rilke um, in one of his elegies, one of the Duino elegies. Um, and when he's talking at the end about observing some ancient Greek tombstones, and he says this about them, because this is about our embodied gestural being. Weren't you astonished by the caution of the human gestures on those attic gravestones? Wasn't love and departure so gently placed on the shoulders that it seemed to be made of a different substance than in our world? Remember the hands, how weightlessly they rested. 
though there is immense power in the torso. You know, it's a beautiful way of putting this. You know, the, the gentleness of touch, the lightness of being in this world, when our gestures are reflective of perhaps a sense of embodied power in this world, but also when they're imbued particularly, and this is another dimension uh, that has already been spoken about today, is that when we turn towards experience, both internally and externally, with care and kindness and compassion, towards that which we encounter, even if it is the most difficult thing that you encounter in your life. And if there is one thing that makes mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition, interestingly enough, mindfulness is spoken about in the Buddhist tradition as being something which is always, in certain elements of this tradition, always a wholesome mental quality. Always something which is called kusala, wholesome or skillful um, in its reaction. Now, and when I first encountered this, I was rather puzzled about this. Why, why was this called always a wholesome mental quality? Because I often hear, and used to hear, and still do hear actually, uh, and encounter sometimes in my reading, teachers who refer to you know, uh, mindfulness as being something which can be also unwholesome. And, and you know, there is certain, some justification for that. Um, in some of the textual evidence. But there is this claim that, that you know, within certain parts of the tradition that mindfulness is always a wholesome mental quality, that sati is always wholesome. It really rests, to kind of cut the long story short here, it already rests on the sense that this mindfulness really cares about what it looks at. And so when we're talking even about looking at thoughts, but particularly when we're, that those thoughts are embodied, when we start to look at their, their, if you like, their signatures within the body, when we start to look at our contact with the world, we turn towards it in our mindful attitudes with something that imbues our looking, our seeing, our touching, even when I sense tasting the world, because we do, Again, I can use that literally and metaphorically. Obviously, we taste our food, but we taste the world. We're constantly tasting experience. And when we taste it, it cares. It cares for what it sees, tastes, touches, and smells. And all of our senses, so all of our senses which are embodied, they're not disembodied, are engaged in that gentle, caring, kindly turning towards what we encounter. You know, um, as Rilke also says, be the magic at the crossroads of your senses. You know, how often are we that? How often are we in the place, not of remembrance, of mindfulness, but of forgetfulness? When we get caught up in our projects, which are about the future, which can be very important, but they can come to dominate. Or we get caught by the past and we lose that magic moment, that wonder, that sense of being which is right there in your corporeal existence at this moment. We're not talking about something future, we're not talking about something which is going to occur tomorrow or in 
two weeks' time or two years' time or ten years' time. But the magic of the crossroads of your senses is here now. It's in your embodiment at this moment. It's in your perceptions at this moment. If we literally have eyes to see, if we have ears to listen and our senses to touch the world in all the ways that we're often touching that world. Just one final quote to finish off tonight, and this is almost like a story to be continued perhaps later in the week, um, and I'm sure Christina and Akinchino will also continue this in their own ways, in their own investigation, but I shall certainly pick up on some of these things perhaps in my uh, talk later in the week here. Uh, Fernando Pessoa, some of you might know his work, is a, a Portuguese poet um, who wrote in many, many languages, very interestingly. He had about 26 Pessoas, per, you know, I could say 26 Pessoas, he had 26 Pessoas um, that he wrote under, um, all different names, and he invented biographies for all of them. <laughs> They're all aspects of himself. <laughs> But I, there's a wonderful quote which I love, which I just want to leave you with to finish the evening. He says, To think is to have eyes that are not very well. To think is to have eyes that are not very well. We're not contacting the world. We're often thinking about it. We're often disconnected from it. And we, we lose ourselves in that fundamental forgetfulness of our embodied experience, and we do it to our own cost. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thanks. Can we just sit perhaps for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.